The Jet Set Breakfast. Music, culture, lively and critical discussions on SAFM. Twelve minutes past nine, and I have to say that this is often the best part of my Sunday, is when I get to hear what our guest presenters choose as their musical choices here on the show. And it's always a diverse, diverse selection of music. And here we go with something which is completely different, classical music composer Arve Part. And in fact, we're going to ask our guest all about it. Who is our guest this morning? Professor Mary Metcalf. She's worked in education since 1974. She worked from 1994 to 2004 as the MEC for Education and then Agriculture, Conservation, Environment and Land Affairs. She moved back into education and uh, worked as the lead sector specialist in social infrastructure at the Development Band of South Africa. And she's currently a senior research associate at the University of Johannesburg, also the director of Education Change at the Programme to Improve Learning Outcomes, the PILO. And we'll find out more about that. But firstly, Prof. Mary Metcalf, welcome to the show. Hi, Michelle. Nice to talk to you again. It's always good to talk to you. Do you mind if I call you Mary so that I'm not going Prof Metcalf, Prof Metcalf, Prof? You know what, Michelle? I prefer to be called Mary for lots of reasons. But one of them is that Prof is a hangover from when I was at the Center. I was head of school. So it's an institutional position. It's not a permanent title. So Mary is good. Good. I like that a lot. I always feel bad, and I'll tell you why, and it was something I used to say to Justice L.B. Sachs. I always felt like I had to call him Justice L.B. because he had worked so hard to become a justice. And then like, it felt like if you didn't call him Justice, well, what happened to all the hard work <laughs> that it took him to become that? So thank you very much for allowing us that. 
Mary, talk to us about uh, your first choice of song. Let's start with that because it really is the most beautiful piece by... He's an Estonian composer, Avo Part. He's an, he's an Estonian. He was born in the 1930s and I think he's still alive. Yes, so as far as I know. So it's a kind of um, music that they call holy minimalism. And it's based very much on Gregorian chants and Renaissance music. And I find it so peaceful. I love Avo Part. You know, I'm looking at your choice of music and I see that um, a lot of it is classical music. It is, um, as you say, in many ways, probably very peaceful. There's Pretty Yende, who we will definitely play a little bit later. And I wonder if you choose the piece in your personal time because your professional space is complex, complicated and uh, difficult on so many levels. Yeah, I only listen to classical music, so I have to confess to your team that I was very late in sending my music choices because <laughs> I listen to what you play and I often learn a lot from it. But my daily listening is only classical music. And if you ask me about modern music, I am an ignoramus. <laughs> so the, the piece that comes classical music and the richness of that is a very important part of my sanity. Let's go back a bit in time. We are going to get uh, into that world of education. Uh, you may have heard the interview a little earlier with our young mathematics whiz, whiz woman, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's go back to the, you, you grew up or you were born in uh, Zimbabwe, what was obviously then Rhodesia. And came across to South Africa, what was the move into education? Because in many ways, and I've, I do feel this as I look at the many people that we've interviewed, that it has to be a kind of calling to be so passionate about education. Yeah, I, I got into education almost by mistake because I needed a bursary in order to pursue <laughs> any post post-matric study. Yeah. And it's very interesting. When I ask teachers about why they, how, why, what made them become teachers, there's a high percentage of teachers who, for whom it was the most financially viable option. So up until then, I had been hoping to do something like social work. But what I've realized is when I Sorry, Mary, we seem to... I'm not sure if you're moving around. We seem to have uh, lost your line a little bit. Are you moving? Can I find you in a good... There. How about there, where you yeah, are right no. now? Stay put. <laughs> yeah, so basically education found me because I wanted to make a difference and it was the best way of getting funding for post-matric study. And that's the case for many teachers. You know, Mary, you spoke about wanting to work in the social space, and yet in many ways that's exactly, if you do it right, what being a teacher is all about. Absolutely, and we see it with COVID-19 because so many teachers are performing work that has to do with supporting families at this difficult time. Yeah. I was quite struck by one of the reports that I think came from the DBE about teachers in northern KwaZulu-Natal who've been feeding children during the lockdown from their own pocket because they're so committed to care for their children. And I think it's a facet of the professionalism of our teachers 
that so many people are not aware of. Let's talk about that facet that people are not aware of and also that idea of what it means to be a teacher. I mean, on the show, we, we, we very often talk to young people. We talk about the teachers who have mentored them and how it has shifted and changed many of their goals and the way they look forward into the future. But the challenges to be a teacher, it's, as you say, it's particularly in COVID, it's a difficult time. But before that, and if we look at post-19, I mean pre-1994, what it must have been to be a teacher then, even so? When I workshop teachers, one of the questions I love to ask them is, what gives you the greatest satisfaction in your work? And teachers consistently across the country say it's making a difference to the lives of young people and through that, making a difference to community. So I would say consistently through all of the dark days of apartheid to the present, teachers work beyond the call of duty in ways that I think are not appreciated in the country to support young people, not only that they learn, but that they flourish. And I think we owe them a debt of gratitude, and I always try and resist the negativity toward teachers in the narrative out there, which is that they're lazy, that they don't work, that they're always on strike. It really is not true. You know, um, it's, it's, I'm just looking, we've got an SMS from someone saying, Michelle, I totally disagree with you. Professor Mary Metcalf is just that. Professor Mary Metcalf. The three-part name cannot be abbreviated nor shortened. That's from Muna in Cape Town. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Mona, we're going to take guidance from uh, Professor Metcalf, and as she says, the professor is aligned to her time at the University of Witwatersrand, and she's in a different space now. I also want to say your program is extremely informative and educating. That's because we have an educator on the show, and it looks like you've taken me from our previous station, which has since become toxic. So I appreciate you for what you are doing for us, Professor Mary, or you see now even I'm getting confused. Um, we talk about this idea of teachers and you mentioned how they are often lambasted, they are often critiqued very heavily. And yet I imagine as someone who has been a principal, can you talk about that ecosystem in a school? Because we haven't ever really interrogated it and how critical that ecosystem is for operating with regards to the pupils. Tell us how that really works, the principal, the teacher. Who else is in that ecosystem and what is required to make a school space a good school space? That's a wonderful question because the work of the principal together with the team of leaders and the school management team is fundamentally to make it possible for teachers to do their work, to provide the environment to monitor their work and to support them. And it's very interesting because that um, differentiation within the school is very much driven by subject and phase specializations. The principal will lead a school with, for example, foundation phase teachers. And often, principals have never worked in foundation phase themselves. But there's a head of department for foundation phase, there's a teaching team for foundation phase, and what the principal needs to do is to understand and support their work. I find that very interesting because 
many male principals in particular who've never worked in foundation faith are almost intimidated by the challenges of what it means to lead as a teacher a class of small children, often in classes of 40 or 50 or 60. And I believe that principals should actually be willing to go into that class, lead to the children, give teachers some time to talk to their colleagues because a foundation phase teacher teaches all day without a break and there's very little time for them to um, interact with their colleagues, which all teachers need. You know, you've mentioned a couple of words here, the foundation phase and the idea of reading to children. And I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend and she was telling me how from the eight, from the time that her child was born, literally two months into his life in the world, she literally started reading to him and giving him like cloth books, etc. And she said even now, and he's nine years old, they early in the morning before he has to go to school, they lie on the bed with a cup of hot chocolate and read 15 minutes from a book. And it doesn't matter. I mean, that can be, it can be home language, whatever the case may be. But just the importance of reading in the foundation phase. Talk to us about that and how, because many, many families, that's just not possible to do. It's not possible to get the books into the, into the, into the home. It's not possible to spend time reading. They may not be the right books. How does one continue with that in the foundation phase, even if you can't do that in the home? Well, that's in, you, you talk about the importance of reading to a child. Now, reading to a child does several things, particularly from a young age. It introduces them to um, listening to a story. It exposes them to more vocabulary. It, it gives them an understanding that this narrative comes from a book and that the symbols on the page that translate into the language. Now, that is a very abstract concept. And yeah. that concept needs to be assimilated by young children before they can learn to read. So reading from a book is great. But, you know, for many families who don't have access to books, storytelling, bringing in stories from the community, from the family, talking to young children is all about building language capability, growing vocabulary, and any family can do that. So go beyond simply opening the book and go to the storytelling, the narrative, the imagination, the use of different words and languages in a completely different, uh, I suppose, uh, manner, if one wants to call it that. Talking of books, your choice of book was My Father Died for This, Lukanya and Abigail Kalata. Tell us about why you chose that particular book. Change that book because I am at the moment very angry that justice has not been done to the Kalata family, to the Ganiwe family. Yeah. The book was written by the son of Kalata who was killed in a hideous fashion together with another three people in yes. the Eastern Cape because they were driving a powerful community mobilization and community self-governing resistance to apartheid. The case was taken to the TRC and there was no amnesty granted. 
that the case has not been pursued post-PRC, and I think that's a travesty of justice. How would they take it now if it was going to be pursued again? And certainly we saw that Ahmed Timol, that was pursued at a very late stage. How would we do it now, so many years later, to your mind? Well, the work of, of, of the family of Ahmed Timol in bringing justice in yes. terms of that horrendous murder has to link to other cases. And the Tim, Ahmed Timol website is picking up the story of the Kalata family, of the Ganiwe family, and they are working together as a set of families, together with Neil Agate's family, to see if the perpetrators who are still alive can face justice. As I read their narrations, it's not vindictive. It's about getting people to face what happened and at least to simply acknowledge and to apologize. Nothing will bring those remarkable leaders back to our country. Okay, Mary, we, we, we're cracking up a little bit with you, so if you are moving, I'm going to ask you. But I want to take that one step further because I, I think it was last night, I, I listened to an interview with um, on BBC World with Madeleine Fullard, the South African who is involved in excavating the bodies of people who died during the apartheid era, who were murdered during the apartheid era. And she spoke about the importance of closure uh, with regards to any one of those stories, and not they're not just stories, as you say, you know, the book is more than just a book. It is about finding justice and finding closure. Uh, and I'm wondering if that is something that, that does cross your mind and that you do think about. You know, Madeline Fuller's work is just absolutely fantastic, and I follow her on Twitter. Yeah. And that, that painstaking and painful work of identifying people who died and were buried in unmarked graves and restoring to the family the remains so that the families can connect appropriately, make a connection with the spirit is something that is so important for the families and that work must continue. We must certainly try and get her into the studio as well and, and talk to her about that work because, as I say, it was a fascinating interview, but also profound as well because for any mother and parent and family member who has lost a family member and does not know where that body is and does not have closure. It is just utterly inappropriate. Our guest is Professor Mary Metcalf. She's an education specialist. She's a lover of classical music, and we're going to hear the second choice of song after sports, which is the fabulous one and only Pretty Yende. And she's also someone who can take our conversations in all sorts of spaces that may not necessarily be education as we assume it to be. It's 9.30. It's Zai time. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown.
don't know how that got cut off. My apologies. That's not a good thing at all. That is the choice of our guest presenter, Professor Mary Metcalf, education specialist. And uh, Mary, the choice of Pretty Yende, South African opera singer. I have to say I listened to that and my heart does go into my throat with the quality of her voice and the extraordinary, extraordinary talent that she is. And we need to celebrate her because yesterday she tweeted that last night she was making her debut at the Bolshoi in Moscow. This is a South African woman from Alanga who is taking the world's opera stage and making it her own, and we should be very proud of her. I feel like sometimes we don't always celebrate people who are doing amazing things for South Africa because they seem to many people, it seems as that that's just a periphery. But it's not a periphery. It is about waving and taking the South African flag and flying it high. Yeah, absolutely. And she does that. Yeah. And we need to celebrate her much more. Well, we're going and to... doesn't she sing beautifully? That's why I say my, my heart goes into my throat because it's just like... She raises, her voice just moves. It's like liquid fire, you know, it just kind of goes, <laughs> and it's like, it's just all over the place. It's absolutely incredible. And um, Mary, your, your, your first guest is on the line and we're going to get to her in a moment. But one of the things we're talking about is around um, education. And there's a project that you are now involved in called Pepa Ufunde, which is the safe schools environment. And I've got a couple of questions in, around it. The one is it's being funded by the Solidarity Fund and Xenex Foundation. And I suppose what that talks to is how critical in this time of COVID it is to get uh, partnerships, collaboration, sponsors, funders, but I prefer to think of it as a partnership in a time like this to ensure that schooling continues in the best possible way that it can. Talk to us about that. Yes. Solidarity Fund and Xenex chose to initiate this project in support of partnerships and collaboration, but also because they were convinced that what we need to hear is the voice of school leaders who are solving problems every day in a yeah. variety of contexts that people haven't imagined. So Pepe Funde has a website and it has a weekly radio series with Reggie September on Radio 2000, yeah. which gives school leaders a platform to talk about how they are adapting the guidelines and making them work in their context. It's another shout out to educators and to school leaders and teachers for what they're doing under covid what is happening under COVID? I mean, I read something that you, where you were interviewed and you said we need to not look at the, the fact that uh, matric pupils are only getting 70% of the curriculum, but we need to look far more broadly than that. What do you mean by that? Well, all of our learners and have had much less time to be in school than in any year that we can imagine in the past. It's unprecedented. The matric learners have been back at school more than any other grade other than grade seven. Yeah. But all of the grades have had much less time at school. And even now, when we have returned to school with all grades, many learners are only attending school half of the time because they need to physically distance. 
Now, this is hugely challenging for teachers to plan teaching when there's so much catch-up to do, to plan assessments and to plan for teachers to learn at home. But what everybody needs to understand is that learners can only be assessed on what's been taught. Yeah. It's not a sprint to cover everything that cannot have been taught this year. It's a marathon that will take three years. And it's not only South Africa. Everybody is grappling with this yeah. problem in all countries. I have no doubt that you are getting to speak to a lot of educators globally. What's the sense that you're getting from them as well? Working in Africa in particular, I've been part of an education international initiative with Open Societies where we've been working with UNESCO and bringing together governments and unions in a range of African countries to talk about what they would be able to do more effectively if the unions and governments collaborated better. And we had them reflecting on what they need to do. The challenges that are being faced in all of the countries are very similar to ours. How do you support teachers with psychosocial? How do you maximize access to online possibilities in an ecosystem which is not inclusive of the majority of learners and teachers? So our challenges are shared. Are you, are you confident that they can be resolved? I am worried about learner attendance. Uh, Learner dropout is a major challenge in South Africa. We have as many as 40% of our learners who never even write matric or complete matric. And what happens when learners attend school sporadically is they become disengaged. And they gradually, gradually start attending less and less, which leads to dropout. So the, the zero dropout campaign is another campaign that we've profiled on people with Hyundai yeah. because all school leaders need to be hyper-vigilant to tracking who's not attending school and making sure that they reach out to family and community to bring them back. We have to get our learners back into schools, a supportive environment that meet them where they are in terms of their psychosocial space and their current learning realities. Children who haven't been at school for months and are in, for example, the foundation phase or just started high school, almost need to go back to the beginning of the year. The school needs to be a safe and supportive space for them. And that's what school leaders need to work on. Our guest today is Mary Metcalf, educationalist. Mary, you spoke about um, inequality, and your first guest is Nontero Madube-Dube from Equal Education. Very briefly, tell us a little bit about Nontero and uh, as General Secretary, but also what is Equal Education? So, Michelle, oh, I think it's Nontero speaking now, ne? We just Mary, just briefly, I'm interested to know your choice of guest. Okay. Okay, so I've, I've in, asked you to profile the work of Monpedo Maduba Dube because I believe that Equal Education is a critical organization in our country. We have a framework of a Bill of Rights, but the role of civil society is to hold governments accountable for the promises that they've made. And what that requires is not just individual voices, but organizations Mm. that 
build the understanding of young people in particular as to how that interaction between civil and society and government should work so that we, in collaboration with government, hold them accountable, bring to the surface things that haven't been delivered and should have been delivered. So what Nongredo does with equal education is, first of all, build organization, build young people to be able to be to work in an organization, to learn all of those organizational principles of being in a collective, but they also do fantastic work of research and challenging and holding government accountable. We do have Nongkero on the line. Nongkero, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Nongkero. Oh, hello there. Hi. I, I, I've got a disclaimer, Michelle. Hi, Mary. I am driving I'm in two towns in the East Cape with comrades. Sorry, sir, um, you're going to have to say... Watch some community meetings, but I'm here and I'm listening. I just hope you can hear me all. Okay, well, we just hope that you aren't the one that's actually driving as well. No, 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 not, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Now, Peter, I'm going to ask you a question that's come up on, on our screen from one of our listeners. And Mary, it, it's the same... Um, listener earlier, Muna, and I'm, it's sounding like Muna, Muna is in fact a, a teacher um, himself and saying, can you ask, um, how does a teacher stay motivated in today's school environment? And obviously talking about pupils who, are, who it appears, and then this is in the quote, characterized by often violence, uh, sometimes laziness, maybe drugs, alcohol, and high sexual activity. And Muna says that it's really be difficult not to be frustrated with the job. Nongkero, your job is in many ways to ensure that there is quality education. How does a teacher stay inspired, motivated, when there are such odds against them in many ways? Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's a critical question. Um, and, and that's something I grapple with a lot when I engage with my own peers. I, I have a Bachelor in Education, uh, majoring in Maths and, uh, and Languages. Yeah. And when I'm looking for a teacher's perspective to inform some of the work I do with learner members of equal education, I get a sense that young folks that have been inside the system for two to four years are already feeling quite battered. <laughs> but on the flip side of that experience is that learners themselves feel quite disconnected and disengaged by their teachers. So there's a, there's a structural breakdown in the relationship between learners and their educators. And I always say to my own peers, at least, that you need to get organized. There isn't a place of solace and building of resilience if you don't talk to others that share the same experience. So typically we're able to meet in small groups and have discussions around the things that challenge folk, and that could be stood curricular inside the classroom experiences, pedagogical approaches, but also politically um, and, and, and sociopolitically. What, what, what do we imagine learners are going through in these different sort of environments? Hmm. And we can typically draw ourselves to the context because we live inside those communities as well. And so... We come back into the classroom, I think, feeling energized and looking at things quite differently. But also, I suppose, the will of feeling like you can inform some kind of structural change through an organization like Equal Education that isn't connected to, um, I want to use diplomatic language to, to talk about uh, the role teacher unions are, are, are meant to be playing for young teachers, in particular in schools. 
um, but, but where you don't have that kind of commitment, but you have a group of other folks across the country, um, similar age, like they can, they can rally each other around beating the battered teacher um, syndrome and, and working with learners to redefine uh, relationships inside the classroom. I, I mean, I think it's an important question, but it's ongoing. See? So I, I would advise uh, the person that, that's written in to maybe direct message me on any of our social media networks, and it'd be good to connect. So, Muna, there we go. Get hold of Nongredo at Equal Education. You know, one of the things that both of you, Mary and you, Nongredo, have raised is this idea of the ecosystem critical, critical network that is required in order for the school system to work. So it's not just the teacher in the school, it's not just the headmaster, it's not just government, but it's the equal education, it's the unions, it's the connection of all of those things and ensuring that that network really works. I'm imagining uh, in your work, Nontredo, you are working very much in that networking space. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that is that is important for us uh, as, a, as a form of support from people like Mary, Comrade Mary, is, is the ability to be able to connect with folks in different parts of the sector. I think yeah. if we understand and, and truly work on the idea that, you know, what happens in the classroom and the, the holistic development of a child and the learner um, is, is part of like a, a larger macro system, the, the, the approach to the structural reforms and issues that we argue around. Um, that does belong to the school community. An example of something like this is that we at the moment have been running a campaign around the school nutrition program inside schools, but learners are quickly able to connect this to the food insecurity inside their own communities. Yeah. And so part of the messaging and the issue that we're talking to communities no, we're gonna, we're gonna as, as to, we drive off is it, around how to support Okay, we're going to have to leave you at that because we do have to go to a break. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. She's our guest presenter, educational specialist, Mary Metcalf. You know, Mary, something that Nontero said, which is, and was something that we raised much earlier on in the show, was the idea of um, food gardens in schools and how they can be used to educate children in so many different spaces. I mean, you could think about biology, you could think about science, you could use it to do maths, basic maths. I mean, the the opportunities are actually endless. Yeah, food gardens and schools have been used by many schools in a very rich way. And it requires a well-functioning school that is supported by the community. And that is something that is fundamental to achieving learning, a well-functioning school, well-connected to the community, connected with parents and listening to the challenges that communities face because those challenges come into the classroom. Which takes us back to that idea of the ecosystem and how many points there are of engagement when you look at the entire education process and system in the country. Your second guest, Zakeni Ngubo, is the founder and CEO of Siafunda. Tell us a little bit about Zakeni. I have such respect for the work that Zakeni and the Siafunda team is doing. You know, there's a popular myth that many learners are learning online, but the minister keeps saying that that is not the average family. Learning through IT is 
hopefully something that we will be able to achieve increasingly in South Africa. But what Sakene is doing is finding innovative ways of making learning materials available to learners without necessarily having the data and the Wi-Fi access. Wow. He is imaginative and doing great work. So, Kenny, you're on the line with us. You have to tell us, how are you doing it? I mean, when we talk about digital content, mobile technology, my mind immediately goes to the opportunities, of course, that WhatsApp offers. I'm thinking of Teacher Connect as one of them. How are you working in that space? Hi, Michelle. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you, uh, Mary. So, um, basically, we have created this technology called the Cephonet Digital Library. Uh, I think it's also termed the Black Box where the material is preloaded into this platform that creates its own Wi-Fi network. Yeah. So in spaces like rural schools, communities, and, and, and libraries, by setting up this technology, it allows the community to be able to access material without using data. Um, so it's really about giving people access to content that would otherwise cost them a lot of money or where there would be infrastructure issues by allowing them to access a free Wi-Fi network. And one of the things we've done right now during COVID is to partner with MTN and and, and, and Telcom to zero-rate our platform. So Brilliant. people using those SIM cards can basically access it without the cost of data. So I think we need to, is that, that, did you say that's from Telcom that are zero-rating it? Yes, Telcom and MTN. Well, the, I have to say, Telcom, NT, and we're going to give you applause on that because that is absolutely critical to this idea. Mary, as you were saying earlier, is how many kids are not learning online and not able to learn online. So, Kenny, the kind of support that you need to build something like this, this is a massive startup. You need the pub publishers, you need the content developers. The list just goes on. Indeed, definitely. And one thing that we've seen as well is that because our platform is essentially a content distribution and data collection network, you know, it started off with just the content that we developed, which was yeah. uh, meta and science material uh, in Isuzu, in for instance, like video tutorials. But I think what we soon realized is that it has so much potential to tap into a lot of spaces. So some of the partnerships that we've had is actually with Mary as well to be able to provide teacher training material and support, as well as the DBE to collect past papers. Uh, memorandums and other resources. And we are continually growing those relationships, including publishers. So one of the projects that we're working on now is, is, is getting textbooks to be accessible on this platform on a rental basis. So learners can actually be able to get them for free. So essentially the platform allows for any partner in education to be able to integrate uh, in, into the platform and be able to distribute either video content, software, textbooks, any material that you feature. So is we are able to distribute. So, so it's been tapping into those relationships and growing the platform on a, on a daily basis. So, Kenny, I, you know, I have to tell you that one of the real things that I love about this show is that I hear of stories, and I think a lot of our listeners feel this as well, and we see that in the messages we get, is that I hear of stories of people who freaking start up on things and make the difference, like have real social impact. And I want to say that I listen to the story and I feel... I feel inspired because what you're doing is you're saying is that everybody should and could have access and agency when it comes to education. So I want to say thank you very, very much for that. And thank you to Mary for introducing us to Sagani's work. 
Mary, we literally have um, two minutes left, and I, um, I, I always like to end on something. Well, I feel inspired already, so I don't think we really need to worry about that. Um, we've chatted to a young woman who she's 18. She's in her first year at university. Um, I'm just finding her details again. Sipokazi Magagule. She's a, a science student and went to, to university, and she loves mathematics. And she said the idea of um, maths... And, and arithmetic and calculus is that it has opened up for her a door to the universe. And it was there were a couple of really quite profound things she said. And I just wanted to hear from you. Education, what does it do for us? What does it allow us to do? It opens up the door. Education, it's, it's just a huge spectrum of ideas and spaces and imagination. Education is absolutely critical to participation in society. society. Participation not only in terms of credentials and qualifications, but also the ability to interact critically with information, to be able to contribute with a sense of purpose and esteem in community life. And schools need to build that sense of possibilities of engagement, of inclusion in community, whether or not you are able to find a job. We focus too much as if everybody has to join the race or credentials for the purpose of getting a job. And that is one part of the story. But the other part of the story is that education needs to empower people for full participation. And that's where the work of Equal education is critical. And the way that Sakiri is taking forward access to material is using the reality that most people will use handheld devices, such as smartphones. And that's the way he's reaching people. And that sense of personal self-esteem and agency, as you say, in this ecosystem is critical. In closing, Mary, I'm going to uh, throw a sideball to you. The greatest gift of a book that someone ever gave you? <laughs> oh, books are just such a wonderful gift. I can't think of all of the books that I've received that I've loved. I've, I learned so much from books about education. My own reading as a child has really contributed to so much of my perceptions of the world, values, appreciation. So the greatest gift of an individual book, I would say, is Life Etched in Stone, which is a book that I absolutely treasure, which is a um, history of fossils that tell the story of life in South Africa. It's visually beautiful. It's informative. It's pride of place in my bookshelf. Professor Mary Metcalf, thank you so much for joining us. Life etched in stone, go out, look for it. It's 10 o'clock, it's time for the news. It's no longer good morning, it's now goodbye.